What is up, everybody? This is Hunter Williams. Today is going to be episode 74 of the NeuroEdge podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I know your time is your most valuable asset, and thank you for spending it with me today so that we can learn and all become better and become a higher performing, healthier version of ourselves. The name of today's episode is Eight Ways to Better Control Your Blood Sugar Levels. And as I talk about all the time and I've talked about on many episodes before, controlling your blood sugar is one of the most important things that we can do. So if we, I always talk about two things, inflammation and glycemic variability. And if we can control those things, it's going to set the precursor and foundation that everything else in our life is going to be exponentially healthier. So those are kind of the two keys that we want to make sure that we're taking care of in our life so that we are optimizing our health to the highest level possible. And today I'm not going to talk so much about inflammation. I'm going to talk more about the glycemic variability side of things. And a lot of glycemic variability is our ability to control our blood sugar levels. So what I want to talk about today is eight ways that we can better control our blood sugar levels to make sure that we're reducing this glycemic variability. And overall, it's going to make us healthier, have a longer life, have a more fulfilled life, and just be healthier in general. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break those down. And what I'm going to do first is just give an overview because it can be kind of confusing, this idea of glycemic variability, what that means and what it actually means from a scientific standpoint, but also a body process standpoint. So how that affects our body and then what it's going to do in second, third, fourth order consequent effect of how we are adjusting and controlling our blood sugar, which ends up affecting insulin levels and all that good stuff. So I'm going to do a brief overview of that to begin, and then we're going to get in eight ways that we can better control it. And these things are pretty simple, but they're something that you want to try to incorporate day by day in your life to eventually change your habits to become better at it. And before I jump into that, don't forget, if you want to join a group, we are growing, we're getting more members, a group of like-minded people on Facebook so we can interact, talk about these things in a controlled micro environment where you can feel comfortable asking questions and getting access to my knowledge directly. I've invested thousands of hours into studying health, nutrition, exercise, all that stuff. So if you want more, a little bit more access to me to have some of your questions answered and then also get insider tips that I don't necessarily talk about on my podcast, head on over to that group, check it out. We've got some really cool people in there going right now. So that being said, let's jump on into it. So what I want to do first is just give a high-level overview of how our blood sugar levels work and what is insulin resistance, because that's going to be something that can be kind of confusing, but I want to give a simple 30,000-foot overview so that you can walk away after today's episode knowing what insulin resistance is and how to control it. So to start... I just want to talk about blood sugar levels. So if you are healthy, your fasting blood glucose upon waking should be below 90 milligrams per deciliter. And you can monitor this with a continuous blood glucose monitor. You see a lot of people that have diabetes may have these, but you don't have to have diabetes to have it. You can do one of these. And this is one thing that I'm working on myself is to monitor these things because I want to make sure that I am optimizing this down to the milligram per deciliter measurement. But again, Fasting blood glucose upon waking should be below 90 milligrams per deciliter. Before mealtime, your glucose level should read between 70 to 99 milligrams per deciliter. And after meals, the level should be below 140, so below 140 milligrams per deciliter. Radically limiting uh, net carbs and increasing healthy fats are also important for controlling this blood glucose control, blood glucose level. So think this Think about this level, it's going to be radically affected by the amount and type of carbohydrates that we're eating, and uh, also by how much water you drink, how much exercise you do, all that stuff. 
But what happens is insulin is essential for us to live. So insulin is a vital part of our body and how our body functions. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people have resistance to insulin. And this whole idea of insulin resistance is a major problem in our society today. But the vast majority of people have resistance to insulin. And what happens is it speeds up aging process and contributes to the development of degenerative diseases. And this comes from having a lot of meals high in sugar and high in carbs. So think about the standard American diet, what we're eating all the time. Most of it is probably high in sugar, high in carbs. Think about a lot of the foods, the processed foods that kids eat, that's going to be high in sugar and high in processed carbs as well. But what happens is when we have these high glucose, high sugar, high carb meals, it generates a rapid rise in blood glucose. And to compensate, our pancreas secretes more insulin into our bloodstream to lower our blood sugar. So we eat a high carb meal, it spikes our blood glucose levels, then our pancreas, in order to compensate, secretes more insulin to keep our blood sugar lower because it's not healthy to have higher blood sugar. Um, insulin, however, is also very efficient at lowering blood sugar by uh, turning it into fat. So the more insulin you secrete, the more fat your body will accumulate. So just think about that from a sequential logic process standpoint. When you eat a high carb meal, or especially if you're eating high carb meals throughout the day, your body and your pancreas is going to secrete more insulin in order to lower your blood sugar levels because your blood glucose is spiked. And when you secrete more insulin and you're doing it throughout the day, you're going to accumulate more fat because the more insulin that we're producing, we're producing more fat. Um, but what happens is we become desensitized to this insulin production. And that's why you see diabetics have to take insulin is because they are, and I'm not getting into the distinction between type one and type two diabetes, but what happens is you secrete insulin so often that your body becomes desensitized to it and it no longer produces, so you have to get it exogenously. Um, but what happens is we become desensitized to it and require more and more to get the blood sugar control done by this insulin. And eventually this causes insulin resistance, which causes weight gain. And then eventually if left unchecked and uncontrolled diabetes. And to define diabetes, so pre-diabetes is defined as an elevation of fasting blood glucose between 100 milligrams per deciliter and 125 milligrams per deciliter. So again, remember, we want that number to be between 70 and 99. If it is over 100, between 100 and 125, you're considered pre-diabetic. And at 126, it formally becomes type 2 diabetes. So if it's over 126 milligrams per deciliter, it becomes type 2 diabetes. And think about this. This is crazy. And I'm not sure this didn't have a year on it, but when I was doing research, according to the U.S. Centers for Dis uh, the CDC, your lovely friends of the CDC, uh, an estimated 84.1 million Americans, about one in three are diabetic and don't even know it. So one in three people walking around, you go out on the street, one in three people are pre-diabetic, which means they're right on the cusp of becoming diabetic and they don't even recognize it and know it, which is pretty scary. And again, this is why I always go back to these two things, inflammation, but again, glycemic variability and this insulin resistance is being caused by high carb meals that people are not only eating once per day, but multiple times throughout the day. And I think there is a time and place for carbs, especially if you're someone that's active, but if we can control this most of the time and be in more of a state of ketosis, rather than insulin secretion, we're gonna be so much better off. So that being said, that's just a high level. Think about it, don't get in too much into the nuts and bolts, but just think about higher carbs throughout the day, 
means more insulin secretion by your pancreas and the more insulin you treat on a more regular basis, your body's gonna become desensitized to it and become insulin resistant, thereby having to produce more and more. And then eventually what's going to happen is that is going to convert into fat. So the more and more you have to produce, the more likely you are to accumulate fat, thereby getting prediabetes and eventually becoming diabetic. So that is why it is so crucial to stay away from so much of the added sugar and on top of that, the rest of the crap that is in a lot of food today. So just keep that in mind. Now let's jump into the ways that we can actually do something about this and make sure that we are controlling these blood sugar levels. So number one is proper meal timing. So again, we talk about all the time, intermittent fasting or compressing of the feeding window is a powerful approach that facilitates weight loss and also helps present, prevent things like type two diabetes. Um, in the book, Circadian Code, Lose Weight, Supercharge Your Energy, and Sleep Well Every Night, uh, Sachin Panda, who's been on Ron Patrick, a bunch of different uh, big podcasts, he's a doctor, uh, cites research showing that 90% of people eat across a span of 12 hours a day, and many even across longer time spans, which is a clear prescription for a metabolic emergency. So if you're eating in a 12-hour window or even more during the day, this can cause problems and especially if you're doing this on a regular basis. I think there's an argument to be made if you're doing something like alternate day fasting where you're affecting this window, it can be okay. But if you're constantly eating in 12 or more hours of the day, it's just gonna to be tough for your body to not become insulin resistant, especially depending on the type of food that you're eating. So uh, with regard to insulin resistance, intermittent fasting also promotes insulin sensitivity and improves blood sugar management by increasing insulin mediated glucose uptake rate. So that's kind of a mouthful, but just another way to say that intermittent fasting reduces this insulin sensitivity. So our body is better able to regulate the secretion of insulin. Insulin, excuse me. Um, while there are a number of different fasting protocols, I think one thing that, especially if you're a male, 18 hours is going to be a sweet spot and eating all your meals within a six hour window, I think is going to be more powerful. Some people will talk about what, 14 or 15 hours. I wouldn't really consider that fasting. Uh, but also research has shown that men who eat supper at least two hours before bedtime have a 26% lower risk of prostate cancer have a, and women have a 16% lower risk of breast cancer than those who eat dinner closer to bedtime. So again, Another thing there with intermittent fasting. And then as far as diet goes, just focus on healthy protein and minimize carbs like pasta, grains, a lot of those things because that's going to be something too that affects it. Uh, number two is monitoring your blood sugar level. And honestly, this is something that I have to be better about myself, at least getting a scientific reading of it. But as mentioned, uh, prediabetes is having blood sugar levels between 100 and 125 milligrams per deciliter. Um, any blood sugar over 90 milligrams per deciliter puts you in the red zone of being close to getting insulin resistance. Um, and then there's a few different kinds. So I wanted to break down the different kinds. There's the fasting plasma glucose test where you fast overnight and take your blood sugar sample in the morning. There's the oral glucose tolerance test where similar to the fasting glucose test, um, overnight fasting is required and this person then measures their blood sugar levels. And then, um, you're administered a sugary liquid and then tested for the next two hours to kind of see how your body is reacting to the uh, glucose that you're ingesting through the form of sugar. Uh, there's a hemoglobin A1C test, and this checks the percentage of blood sugar attached to the hemoglobin and would indicate your average blood sugar level for the past two to three months. So this is a little bit more of a long-term reading. And then the random plasma glucose test would make sure the Use of the blood sample that's taken at a random time. You could also do a 24-hour continuous blood glucose monitoring, which 
um, is kind of expensive and you don't really need to do it if you can do some of these other ways that are a little bit cheaper. Moving along, number three is to monitor your blood ketones. And again, I mentioned a little bit of ketosis before, um, but another valuable test is the blood ketone test, which will tell you whether you're in ketosis or not. Um, one, it will help again with intermittent fasting if you're incorporating intermittent fasting, um, but there are different monitors that you can look out to see if you are or in ketosis. And as far as ketosis goes, you're in considered what is considered ketosis. Your blood ketone level is above 0.3 to 0.5 millimoles per liter. Um, ideally, the first thing in the morning uh, while still in a fasted state is the best time to do the test. And having a fasting ketone level above one um, millimole per liter, that's kind of a tricky word to say, but one millimole per liter is, uh, is an indication that you are in ketosis. And once you're fasting and your ketones are great, once your fasting ketones are greater than 0.3, you can start incorporating partial fasting. Um, so getting more into the state of intermittent fasting. But again, that's something really that you want to be cognizant of is what are your blood ketone levels? And again, something that I am working on to be a better monitor of. And I'm a regular faster. I will fast for 24, 36 hours multiple times throughout the week. So I know I'm pretty much in ketosis when I'm during those times because I am going so long without eating carbs and also without eating food and have great energy while doing so. Uh, number four is going to be radically limit your net carbs until you are more metabolically flexible. Again, metabolically flexible, one of the most important things you can do is to have metabolic flexibility. But uh, you're also going to want to adapt a, a cyclical ketogenic diet, which involves limiting carbs, replacing these carbs with healthy fats and protein. And then this is going to help you get closer to your ideal weight. The problem is you don't want to do this for an extended period of time. One, because the ketogenic diet is hard to stick to long term. But if you can go back and forth between ketosis and then also using carbs, especially if you're someone that trains pretty often, that can be as effective as well. Um, as far as the amount, 20 grams of carbs a day is the low end of what's typically recommended. And then some may be able to eat around 50 carbs per day. Uh, and still stay ketogenic. Um, one of the best ways to do this is just to make sure that you're tracking the actual food that you eat, because a lot of foods will have hidden carbs and you may think that you're not eating carbs per se, because you're not loading on pasta and things like that, but you still may be eating carbs. Um, one of the reasons you develop insulin resistance is because you're eating too many carbs, too much protein and too little healthy fat. And again, that fat is going to help us get into a state of ketosis. And when our fat, when our body's able to burn fat for fuel, for fuel, our liver creates ketones, and this helps improve uh, glucose metabolism and burn fat more efficiently than carbs, thus lowering inflammation, creating fewer damaging reactive oxygen species and secondary free radicals. So, what happens is when, when our body switches from using carbs for energy to using fats for energy, it actually becomes a lot more efficient, and then also our blood sugar is better controlled because we're not on the insulin roller coaster where we're constantly secreting insulin throughout the day. So another thing there, if you can get into ketosis. Number five is to increase healthy fats. This kind of goes hand in hand with ketosis. And what I want to say here is that obviously people are probably a little bit more familiar now with the ketogenic diet and what that means. However, what you want to make sure of is that you are not incorporating a lot of vegetable oils and a lot of fats that increase your omega-6 fatty acid 
to omega-6 fatty acid, omega-6 fatty acid ratio to your omega-3 fatty acid ratio. So people will hear a ketogenic diet and they'll just think, okay, no carb, I'm just going to load up on fats and stuff. And then they're eating types of fats like vegetable oil, canola oil, soybean oil, all of these different things. You are doing yourself so much more harm and damaging your mitochondrial health. You want to make sure that you're sticking to healthy fats, coconut oil, avocado oil, ideally organic, organic if you can, olive oil, um, MCT oil, different really healthy oils to make sure that you are actually getting clean fat. Because if you are ingesting these toxic omega-6 fatty acid vegetable oils and things like that, you are doing yourself more of a disservice than probably eating the sugar because that just damages your cells and the mitochondrial function of your cells so much. Um, again, some other ones, organic butter, organic ghee, uh, beef tallow is great. I love that stuff. Um, avocado, olives, coconut, raw nuts, macadamia, pecans, and egg yolks, eggs again, uh, one of nature's best foods that you can eat. But um, you really want to focus on making sure if you do some sort of ketogenic diet or the cyclical ketogenic diet where you're trying to stay in ketosis and then replenishing your glycogen levels after workouts with carbs, that you are not ingesting some of these more toxic fats and they're very clean. So this doesn't mean you can just go to McDonald's and get a burger without the bun and say that you're doing keto because a lot of those foods, especially from restaurants, are going to be super high in these vegetable oils. So eat healthy fats, but make sure that those fats are actually healthy and not just fats that are doing you more damage. Number six, and I think this kind of goes without saying, drink plenty of clean, pure water. And I've talked about different ways to filter your water and get those contaminants out of your water. Um, but basically what happens is, and I want to talk about this more in terms of blood sugar levels, is that uh, you're staying hydrated throughout the day and our urine can kind of be an uh, indication of that. So we want to make sure that we are urinating frequently, obviously not too much while we are asleep, so don't drink too much water before you go to bed. Uh, but if you haven't urinated in a few hours, it's probably an indication that you haven't been drinking enough water. And basically, water is just going to help regulate all those electro electrochemical processes that are taking place throughout our body. And we want to make sure that we are hydrating, staying fueled. That's kind of like the gasoline that runs our engine. And also make sure that we are drinking clean water. Also, you want to make sure, even if you're not drinking things like soda, um, that you are making sure you steer clear of artificial sweeteners in your drink. So even if it's like diet soda or something, that's still going to have some sort of effect. And there's debate, it's hard to prove this at this point, but there's debate that ingesting sweet things actually has an what's called an insulogenic effect. So more often than that, it's better just to drink normal water or something that is naturally flavored like Zevia. And I, I, I don't know, I still wonder about some of those things that have natural flavors in them if they do have an insulogenic effect just because they are sweet and that we may secrete insulin because our body's experiencing something sweet, even though there's no calories in it. So you can never go wrong with just pure, clean, filtered spring water, but um, keep that in mind when you're drinking things. Coffee, that's another thing. Um, it's debatable whether it has an effect on your insulin levels or not. I think for the most part, you're good as long as you're not putting a bunch of additives in there. And that's where most people go wrong is they get the latte with a bunch of sugar and all that stuff. So steer clear of that. The next one, and this is also debatable because I've been trying to do more of a carnivore diet lately, but there was uh, data on this is to eat more nuts and seeds. So in addition to being a good source of healthy fats, nuts and seeds are also an excellent source of magnesium, which many people are deficient in. And lack of magnesium may 
raise our risk of insulin resistance that plays an important role in carbohydrate and glucose metabolism. So even if you don't, like me, are huge on nuts and seeds, definitely supplement with magnesium because that's going to be a huge help. Um, so it helps our body metabolize carbs and glucose properly. And 80% of Americans are deficient in it. So again, make sure you're supplementing with magnesium. I like magnesium malate, but there's other forms, magnesium citrate, that could be good as well. Um, so there was also a study that suggests that for every 100 milligram a day increase in dietary magnesium, the risk of developing type 2 diabetes decreases by 15%. So again, magnesium, we see it is working in tandem with our blood glucose to help prevent things like diabetes and insulin resistance. Um, but natural, natural foods um, that are rich in magnesium are nuts, seeds, uh, pumpkin, chia seeds, uh, different healthy seeds like this. So um, also there was one study that uh, black cumin improved glucose tolerance as efficiently as metformin. So if you don't know about metformin, it is a, uh, I, I pretty, I'm pretty sure it's prescription, but it is a supplement that you can take that helps regulate blood glucose levels and is often prescribed to people with diabetes. But uh, in one study, black cumin, it actually improved glucose tolerance as much as metformin. And lastly is number eight, going to be properly diagnosed exercise. So obviously exercise is going to be one of the most important things that help control our insulin sensitivity. Um, and I am always going to preach focus more on strength training rather than cardio. Uh, and I'm just going to go over some of the studies that I found. So medicine and science and sports and exercise journal found even a single session of moderate exercise can improve the way your body regulates glucose and reduces postprandial glucose spikes which is just postprandial means glucose after eating. And several studies have demonstrated the benefits of strength training for diabetes specifically. 2000 study, uh, it was found that strength training lowered women's risk of type 2 diabetes by 30%. So that alone reduced it by 30%. And adding aerobic exercise on top of it reduced it even further. And uh, people that performed at least 120 minutes of aerobic exercise per week, along with a form of strength training. So combining that with strength training had a 65% lower risk of type two diabetes. Also in April 2019, um, it was found that there was a link between muscular strength and type two diabetes incidence. People with mid-level muscular strength measured using legs and bench press tests they administered had a 32% lower risk of type two diabetes compared to weaker cohorts. So again, you build on that muscle, you build on your armor for your body, it's going to help with sensitivity and make sure that we are not getting disposed to being pre-diabetic. And uh, also, this is kind of interesting, no significant association between diabetes and upper level, so your upper body strength was observed, however. So again, like I always talk about, do full body instead of just upper body. Um, also, lastly, in 2013, Biomed Research International did a study where they investigated how exercise lowers your risk of diabetes and strength training uh, improves glucose metabolism by increasing glucose transporter type four translocation and skeletal muscles. So exercise is helping glucose transport better through our bodies, which if you think about it from an ancestral standpoint, it's just natural how we should be. Also high intensity interval training has been shown to help as well, which I have talked about in a bunch in the past. So again, just get out, get moving and do stuff that is hard, not necessarily uh, just going on a jog for two hours, but incorporate some sort of strength training that you're building muscle, making sure that you're building that armor for your body. So you're allowing your body to live to its full potential. So those were eight ways to better control your blood sugar levels. 
Thank you so much for watching. If you stay tuned to the end, let me know if you try any of these. I'm going to get more into actually measuring mine throughout the day, even though I know I'm pretty good just because I have a low level percent body fat and stick to doing a lot of fasting. But if you can work on some of those things, it's definitely going to be one of the two keys that I always talk about in terms of overall health. It's going to set the precursor to eliminate so much chronic disease that we are experiencing in our society today. So not the only thing you can do, but probably one of the biggest things that you can do just in terms of overall, overall health. So thank you so much for tuning in and I will talk to you guys soon. Peace.